I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. When it comes to the range, you're either all the way in or all the way out. It's high noon for Thursday, November 11th, 2021. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator or join the discussion thread at t.me slash I'm reasonable. You can also find me on Gab and Getter at I'm your moderator. The Substack is I'm your moderator.substack.com and the merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. Today is the 295th day of Barack Obama's third term as served by the half-dead, demented, degenerate, ventriloquist dummy, fake proxy president Joe Biden, who is overwhelmingly compromised by the Chinese Communist Party, the patriarch of one of the most corrupt families in American history, and the father of one of the most despicable sons to ever walk the earth. That's Hunter Biden. So congratulations, commies. You've got all the answers, but you prefer the incentives for repeating the wrong answers more than the incentives and the problems that come from telling the truth. So which one do you choose? You always choose the wrong ones. Now, how do we get into a society That incentivizes all the people telling one another the wrong story about everything all the time. Well, that would take a concerted effort, wouldn't it? It would take a prolonged psychological war against the people of that country. And it turns out that's exactly what we have for decades. We were born into this, as one of my very smart friends was commenting this morning in one of my chats. And it's something I've talked about a bunch of times. This is our default condition. Psychological warfare waged against us from before many of us were born. I'm 43. And when I awoke as a newborn into this world, the psychological warfare had already begun. The media was already influenced by and collaborating with our own intelligence agencies to deceive the people. And that effort wasn't random. It wasn't an isolated incident. It wasn't even a series of isolated incidents. It's been a concerted effort by the very same people for the entire time. You can trace a line back to World War II, and the truth is you can trace it back much farther than that. We were raised to believe only lies and to reject the truth wherever we see it. And we were incentivized to perform all of this dutifully and be rewarded for it. We were incentivized to believe lies and accept lies and incorporate those lies into our life and to lie and lie and lie again about everything. And we have done it for so long. And so many people are committed to the lies that now we actively punish people who are telling the truth. And so very few people 
are ever committed to doing that. And it's funny because you can listen to these people and understand that, of course, they know all the slogans, but they also know a handful of reasons why the slogans are wrong. And you can hear them wrestling with the truth that they also have an awareness of while they're repeating the slogans. And sometimes that truth tempers their slogans down a little bit. They're not entirely committed to this slogan or that slogan, but they think that there is an element of truth in the slogan because they're not prepared to dismiss the entire thing because again, they're incentivized to hold on to it. And so to the degree you are willing to tell the truth that goes outside the slogans, you seem more dangerous, more edgy. And the people who do this the most, well, those are the edgiest, the edgers, the edgies. If they get too edgy, then they start being attacked and the attacks lead them right back to the central narrative because they can withstand a little bit of it, but they don't want to be attacked all the time, especially not when the incentives for compliance are so desirable. And this applies to everyone who is currently doing the work of the global communists. But it especially applies to the people I was talking about yesterday. The very edgy normies, the edgies, the edgers, the people with public platforms. That's who I was referring to yesterday, by the way. I haven't heard anybody make this mistake, but I want to make sure that I wasn't ambiguous about that. What I was going after yesterday was not normal people who are waking up to what is really happening in the world. I'm not saying they should have known it a long time ago. Would have been great if they did. But it would have been great if I did in 2015 and 2016. I didn't. I was probably very edgy then. But one thing I consistently hear about the edgies and the edgers, I can't decide which one I like better yet. One thing I consistently hear is, hey, you can't go after these people because these people are waking people up. And I say, okay, I understand that. And I guess that's a good thing. That's why I mentioned yesterday that it's entirely possible that what Candace Owens, for instance, is doing is helpful. Some people do need to wake up from the point they're at now and get where Candace Owens is right now so that you can get past that point eventually. I get it. I understand the process and I'm not arguing with that. What I'm saying is if Candace Owens in some way is meant to represent an intellectual vanguard of the edgy people, well, what she's doing isn't edgy and it's way too late. If she has the influence over the audience, we're told she has then it would be better if she was waking people up to the correct answers when they become clear to the people who are actually at the forefront of this information, of this mode of thought. And she's not there. If she was there, she'd be saying what she's saying right now, a year ago or more. And again, I was behind a lot of other people. Those people were much smarter than me. They were nailing these things down before I was. But we cannot pretend that these people with these public personas and these massive platforms 
do not have access to the information and the modes of thought that I have. Of course they do. They have the opportunity to look at all the same information. They have the opportunity to analyze it properly without being skewed by the central narrative, but they don't because they are incentivized to stay within the central narrative. They make money off it. They get attention off it. And they are punished when they go outside that and they succumb to that punishment over and over again. That's my point. And they stick with the central narrative to one degree or another based on the calculation of incentives. They don't want to lose their platform. They're scared about losing their social media. So rather than taking that head on, taking your ideas out into the world, expanding your presence on alternate platforms. Instead, they close the Overton window that they're trying to climb through. They're actively making it harder on the whole for people to wake up because they're holding the conversation back. They are setting the parameters to keep the incentive structure in place. And people ask me, why are you going at people who are on our team? And what I say is these people are not on our team. These people are not defending our position. These people are not opening space for us to plow through this position. These people are keeping it so that our position seems dangerous and convincing their listeners that there's no reason to take this position seriously. And for the record, Candace Owens is a lot braver than most of these people, particularly people she works for, like Ben Shapiro. And I was listening to Ben Shapiro on the Joe Rogan podcast this morning, so I want to talk about that for a little bit. But before I do that, I just want to say, like, you can move outside the central narrative. You don't need to hold on to any piece of that. The only reason you're doing it is because there's some social incentive to do it. The people around you, you're worried they won't take you seriously anymore if you go outside the central narrative. But here's the thing. They don't know anything, okay? They wouldn't know whether what you're saying is true or not. They only know whether or not it would be dangerous for them to say it. And if they determine that it might be, if somebody might think that they're now a no-no person for thinking about these strange new ideas, then they won't do it. That's the problem. The incentive structure for belief in this country right now as a condition of this decades-long psychological warfare is all skewed. That's my problem, okay? And if you realize that, then what you need to do is get fully out to the range, all right? You can leave the central narrative behind. It's not like we won't tell you about the same events. We're just not going to lie about them. And we will admit where our knowledge is incomplete. And we will say, I think it's this, but it might not be this. Some people say it's this. And, you know, they kind of have a point over here. Not real sure. That is a reasonable way to have a conversation. And so what you need to do is leave the shackles of that psychological war that you were born into behind. They do not serve you at all. All right. Leave all of the stupid and evil communist ideas behind. They are all a result of state media propaganda that has been inflicted on you for your entire life. So you do that 
And then you make amends with all the people you have shamed and bullied and censored and tried to get fired from their jobs. We will accept you with open arms because we want you to be part of the American project of human liberty and self-governance. And then you just migrate on down to the range, migrate back to America. And with that, I would love to extend a warm Thursday high noon welcome to all of the redeemable communists out there. Hello, commies. Welcome to the show. Not sure how you found it, but I'm glad you're here. And in not too long, maybe a week, maybe two weeks, I will make you American again. And then you'll be like, how was I doing all that commie shit before? And I'll say, hey, I don't know. But it's probably because you spend too much time listening to Joe Rogan and Ben Shapiro. And here's an example. Rogan and Shapiro are discussing how things are falling apart in cities and kind of settling on the idea that it's just because too many people are near each other. It feels like there's sort of a background level of threat that just exists when there are tons of people yes. who you don't know who are around you all the time. And in small communities, it's not replicated that way because you actually know your neighbors, you know the people you're dealing yeah. with on a regular basis. But if you're walking around a big city, just the kind of lizard part of your brain has to constantly be on alert. Okay? Yes. And then the next person who walks down the street could be the person who stabs me in the eye. And in L.A., that's, that's actually not a wild consideration considering that they've let every mentally ill drug addict out onto the streets and then said that it's a civil right for them to stay there, like right outside people's houses. It's crazy. If you were a real conspiracy theorist, if you're a real tinfoil hat, died in the wool conspiracy theorist, you would look at the L.A. district attorney and you would go, what the fuck is going on here? Like, is this a plot to ruin the city? Is this, I mean, is this like, has China hired this guy? Like, what is going on? That between Gascon that and San Francisco, guy? yeah. Between that and San Francisco, taking beautiful it's cities. wild. And just destroying, destroying the cities. And, and by the way, not doing anything good for the people who are actually mentally ill and drug no. addicted. Just leaving them out on the street and pretending that sleeping on a street corner is the highest form of freedom and definitely have to leave their shit just lying around yes. on the streets while they poop on a corner. It's just, it's unbelievable. And at some point, you would imagine that people would have to wake up to this. And you see this a little in New York, right? I mean, Eric Adams is a big change from Bill de Blasio. Now, if you heard what I heard, you just heard Joe Rogan, who is the smarter of these two people, say that if I was a real conspiracy theorist, a real tinfoil hat, dyed-in-the-wool conspiracy theorist, I might think there was some plot going on here to destroy our cities. So he actually kind of has an awareness that maybe there is something else going on besides just this wave of communist voters putting George Gascon in as district attorney in Los Angeles and Chesa Boudin or Boudin, I'm not sure how you say that, in San Francisco and these other DAs and attorneys general around the country. But he immediately ducks out of it. Why isn't he embracing the possibility that that wild conspiracy theory might actually be true and not only true, provably true. And then Ben Shapiro doesn't jump on it at all, which is crazy. It's crazy. Does Ben Shapiro really not know the connection between all these DAs or between, let's say, the secretaries of state around the country or the judges or the election officials? There's just no plot. These people all just get in there randomly. George Gascon wasn't even an L.A. guy. And then he just comes on down from Northern California and is immediately the most popular choice for district attorney of all time. And there's no coordination at all in the 
public sentiment campaign to turn people against police. Literally one of the dumbest ideas in the history of man. Get rid of the people who protect your life and your property. But this idea just rose up organically from the grassroots and now entire cities, but only the blue ones, start voting for district attorneys who are going to let all of the criminals out of jail. They're going to let them rob all the stores in town and do drugs on the street. There's nothing else behind this. It's just a bunch of communists who like this idea of governance. That's not true. We know from polling, I mean, take the polling for what you will, but Pew Research studied this last year, studied whether or not black voters, black Americans wanted police defunded, whether they wanted more police or fewer police. And it was something like 80% of black Americans wanted more police in their communities. So who is it that's doing this? And the thing is, you can actually go and look and prove this. And these district attorneys are propped up by George Soros and George Soros money. They are, in fact, in these cities to destabilize these cities, to increase the crime rate so that people move out and so that property can be swooped up at lower costs. This is actually part of the global reset agenda. And there is more than enough evidence for this. They could prove it to themselves, but instead, instead, they assume that this must just be what the voters want. And maybe if the voters weren't in this crazy time, maybe they'd think a little more seriously about this stuff. And again, this is one of the prices of not understanding election fraud. And neither of these two people have bothered trying to understand that. Why? Is it because the evidence isn't out there? No. It's because they were incentivized against considering these options. As a culture, we have decided that there are certain subjects that we cannot consider. And once you agree with that decision, once you say, yeah, you're right, we can't consider that there's election fraud. Well, then you have no legitimate explanation for all of these other things that happen that are clearly connected to obvious and provable evidence. It is not a conspiracy theory that these DAs are being put in there for a reason. And they're all doing the exact same thing in places all over the country for a reason. They didn't get hired because they were the best at their job. And they are not acting in a way that violates their oath and also puts their own constituents in danger because they have brand new ideas about how things should work. They are doing the job they were put in office to do. They are in office illegitimately. And of course, we are going to find out that all of this is true. But that conversation is impossible if you don't break outside the central narrative. And that's exactly what's going on here. And let's get some more facts from a fact guy. Right, this is why it's been so bewildering to me. So I am, again, I'm, I took the vaccine. My wife took the vaccine. My parents took the vaccine. I have young kids. I have no intention of them taking the vaccine. They're seven, five, and one. There's no track record of the vaccine for kids. And the risk to them is, is below minimal. But, the, but you and I can disagree on the vaccine. And I don't care what you do so long as you're not posing a threat to me. And yet there's this whole idea out there that if you don't do what I want you to do, 
you're going to kill me. I'm vaxxed. I'm not worried about it. Now, that little segment is amazing. Okay. Every bit of what Ben Shapiro just said is inside the central narrative, and he still doesn't make sense at all, which is what happens when you have to stay inside the central narrative. So he's vaxxed. His wife is vaxxed. His parents are vaxxed. But he's not going to vax his children because he understands that there is some risk. And in that risk calculation, it's not worth it to vaccinate his children because his children have a near zero chance of dying or being negatively affected by the coronavirus. But the thing is, Ben Shapiro also has a minute risk of dying from the coronavirus. One in 10,000, one in 100,000. Those are his real risks. The infection fatality rate of the coronavirus. One in 1,000 people who are infected with the coronavirus might die from it. And almost all of those people are senior citizens and actually beyond senior citizens. They are elderly above the average age of death in America with multiple comorbidities. Ben Shapiro's chances of dying from the coronavirus using therapeutics, especially are near or at zero, but he still did it. Why did he do it? Then we move on to the second half of that genius statement. And he says he's vaxxed. So he's not worried about it. But hey, Ben, didn't you look at the data fact guy? Your vaccine doesn't do anything. In fact, your vaccine puts you more at danger than before you got it. Are you going to get the booster when they tell you to Ben Shapiro? And he is the one with the edgy opinion within the central narrative. Because he's supposed to toe the line and say everybody should get vaxxed. And he actually does say that every adult he thinks should get vaccinated. He can't support that. But he's staying in the same position he was in six months ago or eight months ago. And that position is totally untenable now because none of the data supports that position. The only thing that supports that position is that it is still safely inside the central narrative. And so he's repeating it because otherwise he would have to say that all the stuff he said months and months ago was totally wrong. And it was totally wrong for the same reasons it's wrong now. And many of us knew that. And we had the evidence and the support for why we said it. So he won't get his children vaccinated based on the relative risk calculation, dangers from the vaccine dangers from the coronavirus, and that there's not enough long-term data for children to want to do that to his own children. But his risk calculation for himself is virtually the same if he's actually responding to the data and what the vaccine does and does not do. But he made the other decision. Why? And I'm not saying everyone should have the same risk calculation, but if you're going to be a fact guy, if you're just making decisions based on the facts, well, the facts aren't different enough to make different decisions. And now we find out that the vaccine actually doesn't prevent you from getting the disease, doesn't prevent you from spreading the disease, doesn't prevent you from getting seriously ill, and it doesn't prevent you from dying. So what risk calculation could Ben Shapiro be making for his children that is different than for himself? And remember, it's not just for himself. He's encouraging all other adults to do it. Hey, folks, 
Those are just the facts. Facts don't care about your feelings. Facts care about my feelings. And people are like, why do you say that these people are being dumb? Well, this is exhibit A through Z. A lot of factors that are involved in keeping your body healthy. But this is not, it's not conducive to this brought to you by Pfizer. It's not conducive to that narrative. Listen. Th- this fucking narrative is scary. Yeah, it, it, it's the, the, the lack of willingness to expose information is totally crazy. Yeah. And again, this is coming from somebody who's very pro-vaccine and thinks the vast majority of adults should get well, a vaccine. Well, I am very pro-vaccine. This is not a vaccine. This is essentially a gene therapy. They've changed the term what a, what a vaccine means because of this. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah no. The, M- yeah, the mRNA is a w- relatively new technology compared to the way they used to do vaccines, yes. It's relatively new, and there's no long-term safety data. It well, doesn't exist. And we're, we're in the middle of, uh, obviously, it's important to do something, right? And so we're essentially in the middle of an experiment. This is a long-term experiment with people, and we're going to find out whether it's five years from now or 10 years from now, but if you look at the vast majority of FDA-approved drugs, there, you know, if you look at all of them, like out of the who knows how many thousands of drugs that have been approved, do you know how many have been pulled out once they found out there's adverse side effects after years and years of use? It's fucking nuts. It's a crazy number. Like I said, Joe Rogan is way smarter than Ben Shapiro. Everything Rogan just said is right. Okay, it's nuts that he still thinks he has to give some credence to the other side. Everything the other side has said about the vaccine has turned out wrong. And they knew it was wrong when they were saying it at the beginning. Ben Shapiro, I'm very pro vaccine. Okay, well, this is not a vaccine. Yeah, well, okay, yeah, I know it's a new technology. Yeah, and there's no safety data for it. Okay. Ben Shapiro just explained his risk calculation, explained that he knew there was no long-term safety data for children. There's also no long-term safety data for adults, fact guy. Why doesn't that figure into your calculation? And the answer, of course, is that the incentive structure for Ben Shapiro leads Ben Shapiro into vaccine advocacy. But to be the proper conservative that he brands himself to be, he has to give some credit to the idea that individuals should be able to make choices about injecting themselves with experimental gene therapies. And he knows it, but apparently he can't figure out what it means to know that. How these things work. There's a reason why they do these trials over five, ten years. There's a reason for this. So everybody that's saying, you know, safe and effective, safe and effective, for most people, yes, for most people, safe and effective. So was Viox. So was Viox. I have a friend who had a stroke from Viox, and he was in his 30s. Well, again, the the notion that it's great for everyone, or that it is okay. There have been 12,787 drug recalls issued by the FDA. On average, 1,279 drugs are recalled every year. To understand this, we don't know what the fuck is going to happen in 10 years. Well, that, we that's, don't know. But that's why it was always, for me, about relative risk of COVID versus whatever you think yes. the risks might be of the vaccine, which and is why for people who are old, you really needed to get it. If yes. you're 65 and up, exactly. it was you do whatever you have to do to get it. And exactly. then once it got to lower ages, it was like, 
Use your own best judgment. And that's, I encourage my, par- my parents to get vaccinated. I encourage people that are in high-risk groups to get vaccinated. I think it does. And, and, obvi- the, and the data on, I mean, now they're pushing third shots, right? And, yeah. and like the data on third shots is really, really sketchy unless you're really old and really immunocompromised. Do you see what I mean? They have the wrong answers and they know a little bit of the right answers. But they're not allowed to talk about the right answers. They're not allowed to investigate that side of things. That side is the no-no side. Can't go over there. And so Ben Shapiro makes a ridiculous relative risk calculation based on a ridiculous argument. COVID is not very dangerous. The vaccines are not at all safe or effective. And we know that based on the data. The data shows That for people like Ben Shapiro and certainly his children, the risk from the vaccine is actually much greater than the risk from COVID. But rather than recognizing that and understanding what that means, he still goes with the idea that for most people, the vaccines are very safe and effective, even though there is no long term data whatsoever, anywhere at all. And the short-term data isn't very strong either. And if you read the tests that they were producing, their studies, the basis for them saying these were very safe and effective in the first place, turns out those studies aren't very well done and they don't really say that. But why bother looking at that when the narrative is so strong and you are so incentivized to repeat it? And the conversation goes on like that. I've listened to about 45 minutes of it. I'm not going to say that I've listened to the whole thing. I have not. I don't even know if I'm going to put the time in to listen to the rest of it because it is basically the same thought processes over and over again. It's like they're both edging up to reality, but then retreating. And Rogan is way better on this. Please don't get me wrong. I still love Joe Rogan. I actually just want him to bust through all this. And I'm not sure if it's Spotify or what, but he knows there's something over there that's worth examining and he's disincentivized to examine it and the people he has on don't examine it at all they keep going talking about polls in the uk and thinking that michelle obama could win in 2024 they have absolutely no clue what most of the country thinks right now what most of the country understands because they have been incentivized to ignore it it's just sad Okay, that is why I point out the people on our side doing this. But the truth is they are not on our side. Joe Rogan describes himself as a leftist and then lists all the positions that he agrees with MAGA about. Totally unaware of what his side is actually doing. And he would, I assume, Believe it if it were properly presented to him because he is a very reasonable guy, or at least he always has been. Ben Shapiro is confused. Ben Shapiro thinks that he is always the smartest person in the room because he runs through his bits really quickly. And these are all bits. This is the exact same stuff he talks about on his show. He even recycles some of his own jokes and Rogan doesn't laugh because they're not funny. But let's get off this subject. Okay. I want to just briefly talk about Kyle Rittenhouse. Uh, I watched a good amount of the proceedings yesterday. Kyle Rittenhouse, I don't know if I would go so far as to call him a hero for what he did, though many people are. I will call him a hero for what he has been forced 
to endure and the way he has come through it. He decided to take the stand and give testimony himself as the defendant. That's very bold. He doesn't have to do that. But he went up there and at one point he broke down crying. I mean, this is when he's describing that night and the circumstances that occurred that led up to him shooting people. And the amount of psychological torture and trauma that he's experienced for the last year showed on his face for everyone to see. The judge was visibly and rightfully upset at the prosecution for the stage show they were performing for the cameras and the media covered it in the way you would expect them to. They edited the footage and showed and portrayed a story that simply was not occurring in the courtroom. These people are completely in another universe. And the good thing, as Jack Posobiec pointed out online yesterday, is this is the sort of thing that will red pill people. This will wake them up to what the media is doing. They can watch the trial, understand what happened, and then watch the media cover it. And what they see is the media constantly lying about everything, taking people's words and actions out of context to create a totally alternate reality for their viewers. There were a couple of interesting tweets that came in the aftermath of all this. And there were some there was this one uh, random leftist whose tweet kind of went viral. She wrote her name, Sarah Beth Berwick. I don't think this is she's not a a blue check mark. I don't know who she is, but she wrote, I am highly educated and reasonably perceptive. And it was only today that I learned the Kyle Rittenhouse victims were white. My progressive bubble made this seem like a very different case than it is. And other progressives agreed with her in response to this tweet. Now I cannot expect that she will take the next step and think how many more things in my life, in my ideology are exactly like that. I don't expect her to do that, but it's good that she figured this one out. The media right now, though, is calling Kyle Rittenhouse a white supremacist and the judge a white supremacist. Kyle Rittenhouse was acting in self-defense. Nothing could be more obvious, but that's not good enough. So you have a Black Lives Matter chapter leader in New York threatening riots if the case goes the wrong way. And that's not looked at as domestic terrorism or a threat of domestic terrorism. That's looked at as the woke expressing their righteous anger. And this isn't just a matter of opinion and misunderstanding. This is people acting out because everything in their world, everything they understand about the world around them is completely and utterly fake. The Daily Beast had a headline today. Adam Schiff shuts down conservative view guest host. Now, I played that clip on this podcast a couple days ago. Adam Schiff was embarrassed in public and still lying, still provably, verifiably lying. And the Daily Beast tries to come to the rescue because they can't afford for Adam Schiff to be painted as a liar because then a whole lot more dominoes fall down. So instead, they pretend that Adam Schiff actually slammed that woman. 
that he embarrassed her with the facts. This isn't a matter of perspectives. For a massive portion of this country, the facts about the Russian collusion hoax have been known for a very long time. The Daily Beast knows its audience doesn't know any of those facts. So they can actually prop Adam Schiff up and then they can write a few sentences that everybody knows supporting Adam Schiff's claims. And then, of course, they have the boogeyman conservative always doing the devil's business. And now she's the evil person. It is a completely alternate reality that does not touch the real one virtually at all. It would be like discussing an episode of Game of Thrones with a friend of yours and being like, yeah, man. Oh, wow. The Starks won two goals to one in the last minute. It was nuts. I thought it was going to go into overtime, but they scored. And you're like, wait a second. That, that's not Game of Thrones. Okay. Switching subjects without a segue. Donald Trump made a statement this morning that has some communists in the media losing their minds. Here it is. The great people of Serbia and Kosovo have overcome tremendous obstacles in their pursuit of economic normalization. The agreements my administration brokered are historic and should not be abandoned. Many lives are at stake. The region is too important and the people have waited too long for this work to be cast aside. Today, my envoy ambassador Rick Grinnell visited the Kosovo-Serbia border to highlight this important agreement. Just like we proved in the Middle East with the Abraham Accords, peace and economic normalization is possible, but it takes a sincere effort and unwavering leadership. Peace is possible. Don't give up. Long-term prosperity for those two nations is at stake. If you're wondering why a mostly innocuous sounding post would get them so riled up. Well, it's because Donald Trump referred to Rick Grinnell as his envoy ambassador that is right now going and handling actual foreign affairs. And so they are freaking out that there is a shadow government that is operating in the world right now. And of course, that's their worst fear because they are deathly afraid of Donald Trump and also deathly afraid that there is something else going on that they can't fully understand or embrace. And what we have here is another issue on which the very edgy normies do not dare to tread. They think that even if there was election fraud, it doesn't matter because Joe Biden is the legitimate president of the United States of America. They saw him have some version of an inauguration television show and the people on television and in the newspapers continue to call Joe Biden the legitimate president and the politicians around him act as if Joe Biden is the legitimate president. Joe Biden is not the legitimate president. Joe Biden is pretending to be president due to a fraudulent election and the media's coverage of that fraudulent election that allowed enough of the public to actually go along with their story. Joe Biden is absolutely the president within the central narrative. If you step outside the central narrative, that claim is not as clear. And this doesn't require some harebrained tinfoil hat conspiracy theory to understand. But these people have not attempted to understand that theory. And so here we are. 
Now, if you want to understand that theory fully, you just read Patel Patriot's devolution series. And you might try observing the world as it actually exists rather than being influenced by the central narrative. And the claim here is that in some sense, Donald Trump is still the president. I am not in a position to say 100% that that is the case. I don't know that to be the case. That's why I don't say it. What I do know is that Joe Biden is not the legitimate president because there is nothing legitimate about his presidency. And the evidence will show that. And Donald Trump never conceded. If Donald Trump put a devolution or devolution style plan in place while he was president, and there is overwhelming evidence that he did, there is also the rooted proof where you can think to yourself, knowing everything we know about Donald Trump and knowing the access to information that Donald Trump would have had, is it also something that makes sense that Donald Trump would simply step away and leave the country in the hands of these communists and idiots? And the answer to that, to me, seems to obviously be no. I understand that there are valid and legitimate arguments on the other side, and we will see how all of this plays out. But the steps to get here and the legal framework around all of this and the proof that this actually is in play is really well documented in the devolution series. You don't have to believe it, but you should read it if you're planning on engaging in this conversation. No, it is not obvious that you are right when you say Joe Biden is the legitimate president of the United States of America and Donald Trump is out of the picture. That's not accurate. Donald Trump described his envoy ambassador doing foreign policy work in the world right now. Is he trolling? No. Is he lying? Don't think so. So what could it mean? That's why all the liberals are losing their minds. And it's funny because Barack Obama actually ran a shadow government during Donald Trump's presidency the entire time. And we know that there's proof of that. We can see it active in the world. John Kerry was traveling around the world trying to undermine Donald Trump's presidency for the duration. And I am in no way the first person to recognize that the things that were done to Donald Trump are all of the things coming back and hitting these people in the face. But also on the topic of Joe Biden's total illegitimacy, boom segue, yesterday the Wisconsin Assembly Campaign and Elections Committee had a hearing on election integrity. The first person they had in was the investigator, uh, Lieutenant Michael Lewell from Racine County in the Racine County Sheriff's Department. And he went through in front of this assembly committee, all of the things he went through in the press conference a couple of weeks ago. And I did an episode on that. If you're not sure what I'm talking about, you can scan back a couple of weeks. There it is. But after Lewell's presentation, they brought in Michael Gableman. Michael Gableman is a former Supreme Court justice in Wisconsin. 
So he began his presentation by going through some of the polling in Wisconsin that suggests majorities or vast majorities or substantial minorities have concerns about an entire range of election integrity related issues. And he was showing the committee this to make the point that this isn't some fringe conspiracy group that wants to get to the bottom of what actually happened in that state. And then he gives more of an opening statement, and I'm going to play some of that for you. But this was a really compelling hearing, and it was long. It was like 90 minutes that he was going for and obviously taking questions. So I'm going to hit a couple of spots in that, but I want to play an extended clip of his opening. Like many Wisconsinites, I was disappointed but unsurprised to read the LAB's recitation of the variety of the Wisconsin Election Commission's, that is WEC, unlawful or otherwise derelict conduct undertaken in association with its work on the 2020 election. This intolerable conduct included WEC's consistent failure to comply with laws concerning clerk training, WEC's illegal conduct in failing to discharge its duty to prevent reported incidents of abuse to vulnerable residents of nursing homes, WEC's failure to comply with statutes concerning online voter registration, WEC's failure to conform its conduct to the rules concerning the counting of ballots, WEC's unlawful conduct when it turned nursing homes into unsupervised polling places, thereby exposing our most vulnerable elders to the potential of abuse, motivated by political partisanship. WEC's failure to comply with laws to address electronic voting security and WEC's unlawful failure to complete post-election audit reports. There are others, but it is enough at this interim period of the investigation to note these examples of WEC's unlawful conduct as reported by the Legislative Audit Bureau. The myriad of WEX failures as found by the LAB along with the accompanying attempt to cover up those derelictions has made it unforeseeably and incalculably more difficult and time-consuming to investigate the matters at hand. In short, nobody prior to the start of this investigation could have foreseen just how systematic and substantial WEX failures are. Investigation of these matters is further hindered by Ms. Wolf's, Wex, and several cities' retention of a multitude of high-priced lawyers from both in and out of state for the purpose of obstructing the legislature's constitutional duty and the right to find out what happened. Furthermore, we currently have a governor telling government employees to, quote, lawyer up, end quote, in order to withhold information the public has not only a right to, but is already paid for as well. Similarly, we have the bizarre specter of our state's highest ranking law enforcement official denying the citizens he is supposed to be serving their right to find out what happened in their election, and instead is fighting against the people on behalf of his powerful friends in government in order to assist their obstruction of oversight and cover up their illegal conduct. Whoever Tony Evers and Josh Call are serving in this matter, it is certainly not the public. With that, I think it's fair to say there are some powerful sources, forces aligned against my office, against your committee, against the Assembly, and frankly, against the people of Wisconsin. 
But the unalterable truth is that we have to get to the bottom of this. As opposed to my staff of under 10, Josh Call has hundreds of lawyers under his direction and an annual budget of over $150 million. WEC has approximately 25 employees and an annual budget of about $9 million. Tony Evers, of course, is the chief executive of our state. The recent nonpartisan LAB report makes clear that election laws have been and are currently being broken and that the agency charged with overseeing compliance with those laws is actively violating them so far with impunity. Although I have already enumerated some of the particulars, nothing illustrates the black hole of problems at WEC more than the LAB report's recommendation that the Wisconsin Elections Commission enact a rule requiring themselves to follow the law. This is something out of Kafka or Orwell. So we all know laws have been and continue to be broken, and the LAB report does a good job of giving a broad overview of certain major issues that citizens are concerned about. But the LAB report gives only a general overview of WEC's illegal conduct. My office, by contrast, has been and will continue to do a closer and more refined review of these issues and expects to present robust legislative options in our final report. In the meantime, however, we have spent countless hours speaking with clerks and other officials and various election law experts from in and out of the state. For more detail, I recommend that you, the media, and the public all review our interim report. You each have a copy, and the PDF is available on wifraud.com. We've been busy, and we are staffing up. The obstruction we have met has only solidified our resolve to get to the truth. To that end, we have focused on three areas of inquiry. First, we are looking at the issue of the influence purchased by private outside money in Wisconsin elections. That is, the question of whether private groups may purchase Wisconsin elections. Is it okay for outside money, including money that is being spent on high-priced lawyers right now to obstruct this investigation, change how Wisconsin elections are administered? My office already has spoken with clerks who have expressly told us that they want outside money banned in the state of Wisconsin. Banned. And we have clerks who quit because they were bullied by these dark money groups. And your committee has testimony of just a small sampling of citizens who were bullied, one man whose wife was in tears. To address these concerns, we need to review all contracting documents and talk with citizens and officials. It's not enough for self-interested individuals and agencies to attempt to whitewash and say, oh, it's a gray area of the law. No, it's not. An investigator must interview all the complainants and review all the documents. This is hard work my office is doing that the LAB doesn't do because it's not part of their mission. It is, however, part of my mission. We already have evidence these groups coerced local officials and, in the words of one clerk, endangered the security of the election and the physical safety of voters. Second, we are looking at the Wisconsin Elections Commission and the more general issue of clerk authority. Who runs elections in our state? WEC replaced the disgraced and partisan Government Accountability Board, GAB, in 2015. 
Gab is the entity that oversaw the illegal John Doe investigation and intercepted personal medical information belonging to a Republican senator and filed it under, quote, opposition research, end quote. Kevin Kennedy, the outgoing head of Gab who planned and oversaw the John Doe investigation, said that WEC would be, quote, no more transparent, unquote, than Gab. How right you were, Mr. Kennedy, how right you were. We are seeing that now, and not just with the cover-up. Clerks have complained that the chain of authority with WEC is unclear, and that a lot of the guidance coming out of WEC has harmed election security and possibly been unlawful. What is WEC, and why don't they follow the law? When it issues guidance that the commissioners don't even vote on, is that legally binding? Should they even put this stuff out? It is perverse that citizens of this state often have no recourse when election laws are broken except to complain to WEC, even when a citizen complains about the actions undertaken by WEC itself. Just as it is demonstrably unacceptable for WEC to be the final adjudicator of its own conduct, it would be equally unacceptable for WEC to issue a report to exonerate itself. And when WEC excluded the Green Party from the ballot in 2020, its own actions served to frustrate judicial review of its conduct. It is an understatement to observe that WEC has numerous issues that cry out for the exercise of legislative oversight. Third, my office is looking at the voting machines. More broadly, we are looking at all the confusing technical aspects of Wisconsin Elections Administration. As I've said many times, I'm not in the business of overturning any election. And I'm also not in the business of claiming without evidence that anyone hacked the voting machines. But what the LAB report failed to do and what my office is doing is taking a look at the rules, the contracts, and the technical aspects of election machines so that we can examine and test those systems and come back to our fellow citizens with clear and understandable explanations of how these systems work. This includes deploying independent and certificated technical experts and speaking with machine vendors. It also includes obtaining access to the various voter databases that are, as the lab report has noted, often of dubious quality. In the absence of true transparency, eager citizens are often left with accessing outdated and inaccurate information, often at great expense, and performing statistical analyses which appear to show extremely high numbers of dead voters or other impossibilities. I have not made any unsubstantiated claims, nor will I. My office is committed to thoroughly investigate all credible claims related to elections administration. This is something the the LAB didn't do and was not expected to do. It's not something WEC or any entity under investigation can do themselves. Only the legislature can do this. So I am grateful for the continued support of you, the public, and the assembly. So I know that was a bit of a long clip, eight or nine minutes, but I wanted to give you the state of play in Wisconsin right now. He ran through so many different problems that all go so deep in what happened in Wisconsin in 2020. And what happened in Wisconsin in 2020 is not isolated. A lot of the issues he mentioned 
are reflected in states across the country. He discussed commissions of unelected bureaucrats changing election laws and procedures without the approval of the state legislature. He talked about dark money coming in and buying the elections. What he's referring to is the Center for Tech and Civic Life, the Zuckerberg Chan Initiative. That's Mark Zuckerberg's money going into these communities, Mark Zuckerberg's people going into these communities and specifically referring to Michael Spitzer Rubenstein, who was dropped into Wisconsin from out of state. And there's a chain of emails. There is documented evidence that Michael Spitzer Rubenstein was literally handed the keys to the elections in Green Bay. He didn't reveal anything about what his review of the machines has shown so far, but I'm sure we'll get that in his final report. This was an interim report. He discussed the nursing homes and he discussed the attempts at obstruction from the Democrat attorney general, from the Democrat governor. He talked about law firms coming in from out of state. And I'm not certain, but I believe he's referring to Perkins Coie. He said one of them was a partisan national law group. And at multiple times throughout his testimony during the question and answer period, he talked about how all of these people who he needs to have access to to do his investigation properly are essentially just either obstructing or ignoring his request for information. What could not be more obvious is that this was not the safest and most secure election of all time. The cover-up occurring still now is vast. Why is it that all these people who surely did the right thing and didn't violate any laws and there was absolutely no election fraud, even though it's already been ruled that potentially 200,000 ballots that were marked as indefinitely confined were illegal and should not have been counted. And this range of issues is why many observers, many people who look into this stuff, including Steve Bannon, believe that Wisconsin is actually the easiest state where election fraud can be proven in full. And the citizens of Wisconsin and the citizens of the country are right to call for the decertification of Wisconsin's 2020 election. There is no reason whatsoever to believe that the results that were certified by the state of Wisconsin are actually legitimate. Rachel Maddow tried a couple of weeks ago to paint this guy as some partisan lunatic. He's not a partisan lunatic. Sorry. It's funny because the Democrats on the committee, when they had opportunities to ask him questions, they spent their entire question period, literally the entire time, arguing to him why he should give them the names and credentials of the people on his staff. They didn't ask him to explain parts of his report. They didn't ask for clarifications on any of his claims. They wanted to know who was on his staff. So pretty likely that they could be doxxed and attacked or investigated or had their lives turned upside down so that they could not do the job that they are tasked to do legitimately by the Wisconsin legislature. 
that I mentioned, I guess I'd still be curious about some of the credentials of of those folks, whether they're licensed attorneys here in Wisconsin, whether they've uh, ever been involved in auditing an election before, what kind of uh, experience and background, you know, qualifies them to do this work. But I'd also like to know if, if there are others so that as we have people popping up, emailing or calling or making inquiries that folks around the state know whether that's legitimate, whether they're acting on behalf of you or whether they're not. That's the last point. The last thing you said, that's a very, that's a good point, Representative. And I will take that into, I appreciate this opportunity to come and receive advice. And I will take that into account, but I can't help but wonder. I had the opportunity to listen to your questioning of the previous witness. And now with your tone and the nature of these questions, I wonder if you have put half the energy into seeking the truth about what happened in the November 2020 election that you have in a fascination with the precise names of who I'm working with. As the ranking member of this committee, I've spent a lot of time seeking the truth about the November 2020 election. And the reality is the November 2020 election was safe and secure and conducted very well despite a global pandemic. And when you point to poll numbers of people who don't believe that, I think you, quite frankly, are one of the people that is undermining voter credibility in our elections and doing damage to our democracy, the very damage that you're here speaking Ah, against. That's ridiculous. That is one of the most absurd things I've ever heard. But I'll tell you what, Representative, you have all this knowledge. You have all this feisty energy. I don't recall receiving one phone call or one letter from you. I've been in business for 70 days now, and my phone is not rung with Representative Spritzer on the other end of the line. I think that if you are so impassioned and so knowledgeable and so confident, let's put it that way, if you're so confident, Representative, that this this election was a model of integrity, you are in the minority in this country and Maine and in this state, by the way. And so I would have expected a man of your interest and enthusiasm to have contacted me uh, to show me the facts that, that help uh, me understand your way of thinking. When a majority of our fellow citizens' representative do not believe your way. Now, can you see why I like this guy? Assemblyman Spritzer was repeating the slogans. He was trying to get information from Michael Gableman that he could use to attack Michael Gableman's staff and make it harder for him to complete the investigation. He spoke multiple times throughout this hearing about how difficult it's been to get a staff and retain that staff because of stuff exactly like this. And Spritzer wasn't the only one. His fellow Democrat Assemblywoman Jody Emerson did the exact same thing, trying to explain that she needed the names because the citizens demand the names and the citizens are funding it. So they need the names right now of all the people on his staff so that they can check out everybody's credentials and definitely not so they could have their Democrat partisans harass these people. This is a very fact, especially the issue to which you refer, which is the CTCL, the Center for Tech and Civic Life, which is which was underwritten uh, by Mr. and Mrs. Uh, Mark and Chan Zuckerberg as part of their half a billion. That's with a B uh, effort to defeat Donald Trump. And so CTCL comes into uh, five of our cities. 
uh, including no more, more, more robustly that the public record reveals than the city of Green Bay. And you have, you have an individual who is in a leadership position with one of the satellite organizations directly tied with CTCL having a rather, all the public reports say, uh, and we have an email chain that was uh, discovered in part of the a very, very timely and insightful uh, litigation that's going on with a, with a group of concerned Wisconsinites called the Wisconsin Voters Alliance, where they revealed a number of emails, a number of emails from then Green Bay City Clerk Chris Teske, who left office two weeks prior to the November 3rd, 2020 election. Partly the, re- the email chain reveals out of frustration uh, that CTCL had come in and taken over administration of the election in the city of Green Bay. That is a cause for concern. I met with concerned citizens uh, in the city of Green Bay. I went up, I talked with their city council They then went into closed session for about two hours and came back to announce they had hired three different law firms, one from Washington, D.C., with political partisan background, and two from Madison, one with a particularly partisan uh, background. So three law firms, in other words. And that's what happens when you recognize the obvious truth. That Mark Zuckerberg spent half a billion dollars on that election for a reason. And remember, this came out in uh, Phil Klein's stuff, the Amistad Project. He talked about how the contracts that CTCL signed with cities and counties and states across the nation, they had clawback provisions so that if the results Mark Zuckerberg wanted, were not achieved, he could take the money back away from these people. And so for those people out there who are not convinced that there was overwhelming and widespread election fraud and the evidence isn't all there, well, how do you explain all of this? There is nothing in the canon of Joe Biden is a legitimate president thought that explains any of this. There's no excuse and they don't try to make any excuses. They just say, like you heard Assemblyman Spritzer say, this election was very safe and very secure. And they expect people to accept that. Like they're the parent, all the citizens are children, and their answer is because I said so. This, I'm working for all of you. This is an exercise of the legislative oversight to find out if your laws were followed. And to me, there is no more core duty of a government than to run honest elections that everyone can have confidence in. So that, if I, if I appear to be a little crabbed about the information I'm sharing, it's because I'm being cautious. Do you know why? Powerful and rich forces are aligned against me. They are lining up. They they know how the game is played. I am going to do this the best that God gives me the ability to do. That's it. Again, why is it that the safest and most secure election of all time must also be covered up? 
if there was any evidence that Joe Biden actually received 81 million real legal American votes, why would they be so inclined to obstruct every investigation? The old excuse was that people talking about the big lie would cause another very violent insurrection. But it turns out that the very violent insurrection was also a lie. So what is the threat? There have been no riots. There have been no insurrections. There's been no violence from the Trump side. There's no domestic terrorism. All of that is a lie premised on the lie about January 6th. And meanwhile, we have actual media figures and Democrats online talking about how there will be riots at the end of the Kyle Rittenhouse case. Tim Poole reported today, and so take it for what you will. I assume that he's restating things accurately, but that Chicago has already canceled days off for their police force because they are anticipating riots. Chicago's not where the trial's happening. The trial isn't over. They know what the result's going to be because they've been paying attention to the trial. And it's pretty clear that Kyle Rittenhouse didn't murder anyone. He shot people in self-defense. And the prosecution has no case. They should have never brought the case. And at the same time, you have people in New York, that Black Lives Matter leader that I mentioned, talking about rioting in New York if they don't follow the BLM mantra on defunding the police. Eric Adams, he's not quite as communist as Bill de Blasio. So they're very, very worried that he might try to make the city safe again instead of the degenerating hellhole it is right now. The riots we see from the Democrat Communist Party and its allies, Black Lives Matter Antifa, are not organic. They're not righteous. They're not about race. Kyle Rittenhouse is not a white supremacist, and he didn't even shoot black people. He shot criminals, actual criminals, one of whom was just let out of jail that day and immediately went to go join the riot. How much more proof do people need that these riots are planned and organized and directed and intentional? They exist to scare and intimidate citizens. They exist to perpetuate their narrative and achieve their goals by destabilizing cities. But I just want to play you one last clip from this hearing. The whole thing was actually really compelling. I suggest you watch it in its entirety. And allowing those machines to have the ability to um, be overwritten in that 22-month period, again, is an opportunity for what to say that they have not had that opportunity to make clear guidance to the clerks about holding on to the information for 22 months doesn't bring any any source of comfort to people about elections. So, you know, I appreciate you taking this on as one of your issues because put it to bed one way or the other, right? Either the machines tabulate very correctly and they cannot be hacked or we do have these issues. And, and it's one of the things that I think we hear from our constituents regularly and, and I want to move on, too. But where are we on right now with WEC does not allow us to do that. And I think I think it was September 9 or September 10 when we learned a lot at the WEC meeting that was held uh, 
and I watched because because I was extraordinary. Because you're fascinated with Wackenhaus. <laughs> and who wouldn't be? But so I watched, obviously, because we had sent out the preservation uh, notice, and I wanted to see what they wanted to do or what they were going to do about that. But I was nonplussed when they started discussing the consequence of the updates yeah. on their voting machines where simply in passing, one of the participants remarked, well, in order to update, which they were doing on an ongoing basis and probably still are, we have to wipe the machine, which means they have to eliminate all data present in terms of any kind of data that would let us find out if, if anyone was having contact of any kind with that machine when they were legally prohibited from doing so. I can't imagine a step, if they had tried to design a step to undermine public confidence in not only their actions, but also their willingness to try to show the truth, I could not think of an action that could have been more specifically designed to do that. It was also at that meeting. An, another showstopper was when I started interviewing clerks before I, I had authorization to have infrastructure and staff. I, I was on my own for a little bit. And so I started meeting informally uh, with clerks around the state. I know clerks. I know they are hardworking. They are typically successful. They're, they take enormous pride in the quality of their work. We are blessed in this state with, by and large, great government, comparatively speaking. No more so with, than with our clerks. And so I, I went around and my jaw dropped when the clerks would tell me, when I would bring up in conversation, well, who runs Wisconsin elections? Like, well, WEC does. I said, well, I said, I'm not, what do you make of the statute here that says that you do? Well, and then it was made clear to me in these informal discussions that WEC did everything it could to impress upon the clerks that it is WEC who calls the shots when, when it comes to elections. And, and then, so that's why, that's the setup to the punchline of this on September, when, at that September meeting, when both the lawyer and I believe it was the chair and Jacobs, uh, who who observed and then endorsed the fact as they saw it that they don't direct anything, that they merely give to the clerks guidance, which affords no protection to the clerks at all. And then one of the WEC lawyers chimed in and said, and that means that the clerks bear all of the financial and other responsibilities for any litigation that comes from challenges to elections. I thought that was an extraordinarily revealing um, publicly available moment. So once again, as in other states, the Dominion machines are updated wiping all of the information that was on them before so they could not be audited so that 
the data that they are legally required to retain is gone. So no one can check. And he says correctly, it would be hard to design a method that would be more effective at eroding the public trust in the machines. And he's right. But also, they did design that method exactly for that, so that they could not be reviewed. And that's why it's happening everywhere. It's not random. It's not isolated. It's not an accident. This is the system that is allowed to persist in this country. And then he talks about how the Wisconsin Elections Commission says that they are running everything. They impress that upon the clerks that what they say, what their guidance is, must be followed. But at the same time, it's actually all the clerks making all of these decisions. So they are legally responsible for anything that might go wrong, including as a result of listening to the Wisconsin Elections Commission. So I will submit to you once again that this was not the safest and most secure election of all time. In fact, it was the least safe and least secure election of all time. It was most opened to fraud in a hundred different ways. It was that way intentionally so that the results could be whatever they wanted them to be. It turns out they got the exact results they wanted. And so if you're a citizen in this country that still believes your vote counts and your vote matters, well, turns out it doesn't. And that's where we are until it gets fixed. And that's why this is the only issue that matters. Because very little else can change until the 2020 election is resolved and until people wake up and realize that the election was stolen, Joe Biden is illegitimate. And then once you understand that, you start being able to understand how all those things we were talking about in the beginning of the episode, all those things that Joe Rogan and Ben Shapiro are very confused about. All of a sudden, all those things make a whole lot of sense. And sorry, Joe, I love you, but this ain't a conspiracy theory. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. Goodbye. Whether you're a total newbie to podcasting or even if you've had a show before like me, you know how intimidating it can be to start your show. The tech side especially can be daunting. That's why I'm so grateful Anchor exists. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. They knock down all the barriers to entry. Let me explain. First off, it's free. I don't know how or why, but I'm happy about it. The platform is great. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. I can't even begin to describe how much easier it was to get my show on all the major platforms this time than it was a few years ago. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. That's right. You build your show, you make money. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, and the company is committed to the success of its content creators. Go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks for listening. 
Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator. You can join the discussion at t.me slash I'm reasonable. I'm also on Gab and Getter at I'm your moderator. The Substack is I'm your moderator dot substack dot com. And the merch site is cancel You can also go direct to that at shop dot spreadshirt dot com slash cancel dash couture. I'll see you next time out on the range. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!